iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be your host for The Times as we cover all the goings on out in Russia for this 21st World Cup. Over the next month, we'll be bringing you podcasts every match day of the World Cup after the final whistle has blown each night. In the studio with me this Monday with 10 days to go until it all gets underway, the regular host of the game podcast, Gab Marcotti. Uh, Gab, no Italy, no USA. So who are you going to be rooting for this uh, World Cup? I will probably be rooting with whoever playing against Germany that day. <laughs> Just as simple as that. Whoever's exactly. playing against Germany. Even England. Oh, right. We'll talk about England a little bit more later. Uh, James Gearbrandt, the Times tactician, is also with us. He's been slaving away on the uh, Times World Cup guide. England and Belgium. I'm right in saying there's family connections. No, not really. No, not oh, so goodness. much. I don't want to kind of puncture the uh, the sort of aura of exoticism that I may have built up. But but sadly, is uh, there an aura of exoticism? Uh, sadly, only only <laughs> one eighth. Belgian. So, okay, so no split uh, loyalties. You're going to be England all the way? Well, <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. And also with us, Henry Winter, the chief football writer for The Times and author of 50 Years of Hurt. So, Henry, the big question is, could 52 years of hurt come to an end this year? Yeah, I was talking to the publishers about it and they're saying, do we need to update the book? And I said, probably just update the cover. <laughs> you know, which is the, the sad thing. Well, I, look, I hope if they get to the quarterfinals, that's what English should be doing with the sort of fairly shallow squad as, as uh, Southgate has alluded to and that's the ranking in the world and they're, you know, they're a lot of better teams than England. Mm. Gab and Henry, you're both going to be heading out to Russia very soon. Uh, what number World Cup is this for both of you? Gab? Uh, Henry has me beat here. Uh, it's number six for me. Number six? Eight. And Henry. Eight. I'm old. Old. And what's just been your favourite so far, the pair of you? Gab, go ahead. Well, when you actually win a World Cup, it's pretty special when you beat Germany in the semi-final in that dramatic way, and final was all right, too. Germany, I think, was probably the best all-round, even if somebody else won it, simply because it was so incredibly fan-friendly. It was Out of the World Cups I've been to, it probably was the one where the whole world really was represented among the fans as well. Mm. For the football itself, I thought, actually, the last one, 2014, had some tremendous football and some tremendous excitement right up to the... Well, right up to the final. I'm terrible at World Cups. I get so absorbed that when I get back, I almost need to go into a decontamination chamber, decompression chamber, more like uh, Heathrow for 36 hours, because it's almost a period of mourning. I just get so into it. I'm mean, like Gab. You just get so caught up in the country, so caught up in the football, that just the sort of travelling around with the, with the media. Everything about it is just so intense. I tend not to sleep that much out there. Four hours a night is is ample. It's all the adrenaline kicking in. Well, it's probably a little bit of vodka as well, <laughs> probably in Russia as well as, yeah. uh, as as adrenaline in terms of best World Cup. I mean, for me, the, the opportunity to travel in a country when it is partying and when it is arguably at its best, they're trying to put on a show, 
in many senses. I think Japan was just absolutely eye-opening, getting up at six o'clock in the morning, getting the bullet train from the England camp to Kyoto and going around the temples and shrines and that. Just an extraordinary experience. Yeah. How prepared is Russia then for this World Cup? I was at the Confederations Cup last year and uh, obviously those were four cities, St. Petersburg, Moscow, Kazan and, uh, and Sochi and everything went super smoothly, super efficient. There was no incidents, even, you know, obviously there's a lot of very legitimate fears, I think, of, of hooliganism, racism. We didn't see all that. Now, when you're expanding it out to the rest of the Sarasa city, some of which, like like Saransk, for example, are, are clearly catching up, but it's going to be pretty close. It could certainly be a different story. My one concern on the back of what Henry said about the country being at its best, and here it's really difficult to gauge, but the impression I have also from speaking to people at FIFA and whatnot is that from the government's perspective, or at least from the perspective of Vladimir Putin, he's not as gung-ho about this as an event as he was about the Sochi Olympics, for example. So there is a bit of a fear, there's a concern. It might also be because Russia aren't a very good football team right now. There is a concern that in terms of the government going out of their way to go and make sure everything goes smoothly and whatever, if Russia go out early, if there's a dip in enthusiasm, that could affect things a little bit. I just think Russia is just such a fascinating country. I mean, if you, you, know, you study the history, study the literature, study the culture. There's so many elements to it. And obviously we just look at Putin and obviously the, the, the horrendous events in Salisbury is colouring a lot of people's views. But I just think as a football tournament, It'll be, I mean, talking to some of the, the, the England players, the, some of the black England players, just talking about whether their families are going to go out there, actually now is, sad to say, just echoing Gav's point, now is in a way the time to go during the World Cup because Putin, I think, will make sure that he'll call off the dogs. They won't be, I'd be surprised if there's any hooliganism. The real test for Russia in terms of where it is at as a civilised country will be two weeks after the, the, the World Cup. Whatever happens, I'm sure Russia won't want the focus on this tournament to be away from football for, for certain. Uh, what about England fans? How do you expect them to be received in Russia, Henry? Um, not many of them are going. I think 2,000 on the official trip, probably another 2,000. It's the first time that I can remember they haven't been in the top 10 of ticket sales. And normally, part of those ticket sales are from UK-based touts. Uh, and even they don't seem to be getting that involved. I mean, you look at, you know, there are at least two or three countries who are not going there who've got bigger support in a vertical like the Americans have sold a lot of tickets I think that the hardcore 2000 who are going I've been liaising with the, uh, the the Russian embassy on how they're going to be treated and they, they want to have football matches on the day of the game in each of the uh, in each of the cities touch with more than three I, I from what I know of the England fans they will take wreaths along certainly to uh, Stalingrad just to show respect they've been doing this in recent tournaments trying to improve the reputation of English fans and also to explore a country so I think on a sort of low level I think they'll be treated well I think on a sort of broader level I think the police and the uh, and the state forces will be keeping an eye on them there's a huge difference in Russia, even just between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Sochi is kind of like a tourist resort. So these places are all well well equipped. But, I mean, I went to Kazan and the Confederations Cup, and this is the fourth biggest city in Russia. And, you know, if you go to a restaurant, the menu is only in Cyrillic. I don't want to sound like complaining nobody speaks English. Well, like nobody speaks English or Spanish or French. 
And when you start going to places like Kaliningrad, like Nizhny Novgorod, where I'll be at that game where England are playing Panama, you know, it is a very different experience. It's a very different Russia, even from we in the West. The Russia that we see is generally Moscow or St. Petersburg. And, you know, those are big cities. And to some degree, all big cities in the world are pretty much the same. Once you go beyond that, it's going to be a very different experience. Speaking as someone who's half Bulgarian, Cyrillic is not an easy language, so it won't be easy for... But you for, did pick it up, right? Mm-hmm. You could read menus a, t- a little bit, yeah, right. a little bit. The game World Cup Daily from the Times with Natalie Sawyer. Henry, you're going to be on England duty for the Times this summer. You tweeted recently that this was the calmest, friendliest England camp that you can remember. Tell us a bit more. What would you mean by that? I did tweet that six hours before the, the Sun's front page came out with Raheem <laughs> Sterling uh. on it. So it was quite interesting. I looked through, uh, I looked through the notifications, and they were, you know, the, the, for about five hours, fifty minutes, it was, oh, this is brilliant. You know the press relations with England have improved and then uh, Sun's first edition came and uh, you know what it was it was predictable in terms of there is always a story with always one of the England's uh, leading players you know we've had it in the past with Wayne Rooney we had it in the past with uh, with David Beckham uh, I felt a bit sorry for Raheem Sterling having sort of interviewed him a couple of times and sort of knowing the backstory. I personally don't like it as a tattoo. I think it's ill-advised, but I do understand. You know, he's been through things that I can only imagine. So I sort of I make allowance for his sort of mindset on that. I thought the far more important, significant story was obviously the dive at the weekend, which was just stupid. Particularly as he'd been told twelve hours before by uh, Gareth Southgate, "We're going to have VAR. All eyes are on you. Don't dive." Um, and then also being late, I thought it was disrespectful to the um, to, to the t- team coming back late from uh, the, you know Southgate had given him that extra time off. So look, he's a, he's a fantastic player. So just coming back to the you know the, the press relations, actually under Southgate he is he's calmed everything down because the great thing about Southgate he doesn't give a damn about the media. You know, you talk to him, which is important because he's the first England manager I've met. I mean, Terry Venables used to send an FA official to King's Cross to get the first editions of the papers uh, just before midnight because he wanted to see what was being written about him in England the next day. Um, Southgate, because of what he went through with the penalty miss in Euro 96, is a lot more phlegmatic about the media and that's rubbed off on the players. It seems that we always seem to, to build them up to knock them down. That's what it always seems. Like. And what are other nations like? Do they do that? an interview with uh, Christoph Kramer recently. The, uh, he's not a Germany player anymore, but he, he played in the in the final of the last World Cup. And I was trying to one of the things I was trying to get at is is this eternal question of why Germany is so good at tournaments and England aren't. And one thing that comes up from time to time when we're trying to sort of diagnose the ills of the English football team is is it the media? You know, is 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 too much pressure created? I asked him, and he he said that his perception was that. The English media can be particularly sort of mean that there's a sense that in Germany, yeah, sure, you'll get criticised and, and, you know, it's not like it's not like they sort of entirely soft soap it. But there's a feeling that when the tournament is actually on, everyone is behind the team. And his view was that in England, maybe it's not quite the same. Well, let's talk about performance and look ahead to how England are going to fare. Uh, Gareth Southgate says he's happy with the blend of his squad. He's got a good mixture of youth, experience, character and balance. Do we agree with that? Well, it's it's what he can choose. <laughs> I mean, he's, I, I think he did well. I mean, we all did our squads in advance and I think some of us were struggling to get it to 23 because it is, and you know, he's he's admitted it. 
Dan Ashworth, the technical director of the FA, has gone through the, the figures. I mean, he's got a third of the, the Premier League to pick from. So it is because of, you know, the Premier League's now so wealthy, so you can get the best or some of the best players from overseas. So I think it's, you know, how many real individual arguments over the players? There was a little bit of a debate over Jack Wilshire, John Joe Shelby, Ryan Sessegnon, because he had a sort of very good sort of playoff and whatever. Um, but that was it. I mean, you compare this squad now, you know, he says it's a great balance. Probably five or six of them would have got into the World Cup squads of 10, 12 years ago. Gab, what do you make of the uh, squad he's picked? <laughs> with, I'm with Henry. You know, it seems to me England's kind of stuck in between because I think there's some phenomenal young players who haven't perhaps stepped up yet because their time's not here. And I'm not just talking about Phil Foden, but obviously you've got, you have a whole pipeline and you've got others like, you know, Ruben Loftus-Cheek where we don't quite know what he can be and where he can be because even this season when he got more playing time, he was injured. But yeah, top to bottom... It is what it is. You know, you look at those you look at those central defenders, you look at you look at those fullbacks, the goalkeepers, right? For my money, Tom Heaton would have been potentially the best coming off injury. Nothing against Jordan Pickford. Everybody seemed to agree that the year he conceded a million goals for Sunderland, he should have conceded ten million, so he must be really good. I don't <laughs> think he had it. But the fact that Pickford's not we're not in a situation where you have a number one and so you've got a guy who played for a team that played horrendous football this year in Pickford you have another guy in Butland who plays for a team that was relegated and you have another guy Nick Pope who nobody other than Henry knew who who he was at the start of the season so you put those things together and yeah inevitably you know you're starting from from a lower base with lower expectations and maybe that's why he's also gone and emphasized it's funny he's emphasized a system and a philosophy and he switched to the back three and maybe you know the answer to this. Um, I have the suspicion that he thinks that, all right, because I don't have great players that I need to shoehorn into this team, I'm going to put the system first, create a framework, and then maybe in a couple years I'll have good players to, or I'll have better players, I should say, to fill those roles. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, particularly specifically on Carl Walker and Kieran Trippier, if he wants both in the team. Because Kieran Trippier is, is a very good wing back. Kyle Walker's probably the better wing back, but how do you get him in the team? He uses him as the right side of the three centre halves. Which he's played about, what, six yeah. times this year? And he got caught out against yeah. Nigeria for that goal. So, James, how do you expect England to line up then? I mean, they're obviously going to play that, that 3 5 2, aren't they, that they've played for the last five, six games, I think, in terms of the. The individual players, it will obviously be Pickford and goal, and the the back three will be Carl Walker and John Stones, and then there's probably, would you say, Henry, a slight doubt over whether it will be Cahill or Maguire? Well, he, lo- he loves Maguire, but Cahill he keeps on producing these good performances for club and country, certainly recently. It was terrific at the weekend. Scores, a bit of a sort of senior presence, which I think England needs. I mean, I'm a huge Maguire fan, although he can, you know, he has got a mistake in him. The way Southgate was talking, he said, well, actually, we could play both, which whether that puts pressure on John Stones, I don't know. But mm. you say, I like John Stones, he makes mistakes, but I think if England are going to... You know, we went through this with Rio Ferdinand. We didn't use Rio Ferdinand properly in terms of that ability to step out from the back. And if you've got opposing teams playing up one up front and you, England are playing with effectively three centre-halves, then you need John Stones to step into midfield alongside Henderson. And then it will be... Trippier and and I think probably Ashley Young has moved ahead of, of Danny Rose for the left wing back position. You're not you're not happy about that gap. <laughs> I, 
I'm so underwhelmed by the positions. <laughs> and in fact, I'm going to throw this out there as a possibility. If Southgate wants to do something bold, especially against a bad team, and you are playing two not-so-good teams. One. I, I, I still have one or two worries about Tunisia. Okay, first game. but teams that are on paper inferior yeah. to England and who might or who might park the bus. We said that about Iceland, but anyway. What? <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I, I thought know, you would have wiped I, it from yeah, your memory, yeah. but no. But <laughs> Would it be crazy if you are going to play a team that parks the bus to play Sterling there? We bet, yeah. I mean, the whole argument is you don't want him so he can start running at people from deeper, so you get another attacking player on. Um, you do have three central defenders. Presumably, somebody can step across to cover for him if, if you need it. <laughs> Danny Rose, who's been in and out, you know, so inconsistent this year. And the other guy is Ashley Young. I'd, so, I'd have taken Ryan Sessegnon. I, I just think that he is just absolutely flying. That confidence, totally fearless, and fear is always the you know the key factor with with England. I would have left Ashley Young behind. I'd, I mean, the fact that there's two left backs named Ryan, who you could have taken, that would have been better options. You know. Sorry, just coming back to your point, I think that it, what England could do is almost play with just four up front, but with two wide players, and at which point one of them would be Sterling. And then if you want to play Kane and Vardy, and then whoever on the left... Uh, then you've got to shoot point Deli Alli in there. Yeah, but Deli Alli has to start. Well, I was going to say, James, where does Deli Alli then fit into all of this? Well, it seems like Deli Alli is going to play as one of the central midfielders. And I think I think that's what's quite interesting, what I was going to come on to is... We haven't really seen England since they really decisively went for 3-5-2 actually play a team that is comparable to Panama or Tunisia where, you know, they really pop the bus. I think the last qualification game they played 3-5-2 and that was against Lithuania. And if you remember, that was quite a drab performance where they only won 1-0 through a penalty kick, I think. What is quite interesting, though, is I think in a normal 3-5-2, you'd expect the three in the centre of the five to be sort of quite orthodox central midfielders, whereas... Southgate seems to be moving in the direction of having Dele Alli and Jesse Lingard, who you sort of think of as attacking midfielders. And so it's not going to be three cloggers, it seems. He's got three players who can really progress the ball up the pitch. Is it a problem that, other than Maguire, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think any of these centre-backs have consistently played in a back-three formation? And so it's going to be... If if it is a back-three, it's going to be a less sophisticated back three than, than what you would see at club level. But, but I, t- I talked to McGuire about this and he said, well, it's pretty much new to me. <laughs> you know, it's different three. from he said, what he did in Hull City. Yeah, well, he, well, that was just sort of chasing the opposition, but obviously Leicester are back four. Yeah. Cahill, I suppose, has played, yeah. has play, has played in a back three uh, quite consistently, but apart from that... Southgate keeps mentioning France 98 winning and played well the back three and Italia 90, but actually if you look at the quality of defenders that England had in those cases... Look, I, I think he should be applauded for, for trying something differently. And if John Stones can step into midfield, which Rio Ferdinand sadly didn't or wasn't allowed to in a way, then, uh, th- then it's to be encouraged. On Saturday, buy the Times for your 64-page glossy guide to the World Cup, including Patrick Vieira, Gary Lineker, John Barnes, Rio Ferdinand and our team of writers... Every game, every group, the best analysis and your full TV guide. Then on Monday, pick up your Russia 2018 wall chart so you can fill in all the results as they happen. We're going to have uh, regular updates from the England camp throughout the World Cup. But let's um, move on now to the favourites. And uh, it's probably little to choose from when you look at the bookies with Brazil 
and Germany. Gab, what do you reckon? Brazil, can they uh, win it for a record sixth time? So I think if this were a league format, everybody plays everybody else, home and away, I would put my mortgage on Brazil straight away. I'd have no doubt. In a knockout situation, I don't know, because there's a lot of little things that can that can crop up on you. I'd put Brazil, Germany, and Spain all on the same level. Um, I think in terms of, of experience. Brazil and Germany may be a little edge. They have got, I think, better coaches. than Not anything along with Lopetegui, but, you know, the other two are kind of on a different level. With Brazil, there is a question mark with Neymar's role on the team and it's um, and, and with his fitness. He certainly looked good. He came on, scored a great goal at the weekend. If he's fully fit, then I think, yeah, you have to put Brazil right up there. Mm. I think it would be fantastic if Brazil won it. I, I just think, you know, having been out in, in Brazil with, with Gab for the World Cup, when Brazil went out, I mean, I was I wasn't covering that that the game the the Colombia game, but I was in a restaurant in in Brazil and in Rio, and just it was it was just like the whole period of mourning started when uh, when Neymar went off, and you know you always look for a bit of sort of symmetry and poetry with 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 sport, and just what it would just be fantastic if Neymar. I know Neymar gets a lot of stick for the money and the agents and the move, and you know. The, the, and it, he is obviously money-driven, but also he's what a talent he is. I mean, Gab mentioned that goal the other day. I mean, what a fantastic goal. And I just think it would be great to see him. And also what a great example it, it would set that someone who was fought back from you know that bad injury he, he, he got. Um, a little bit like happened with Ronaldo in France oh. 98 when he had the, whatever it was, the, the, the fit of the vapours in the, in the final. And then came back in 2002 and, you know, scored the goals in, in Yokohama. And it was just, you like to see a bit of that. I just think there's something special about Brazil. I think, Gab alluded to it, I think the balance is, is right. You could argue they're almost too defensive in central midfield with playing Casemiro and, and Fernandinho. But I just say, I always have a bit of a smile on my face when I walk into a game involving Brazil. Compared to the, not only the 2014 team, but also the uh, the teams that... Uh, were so disappointing in the subsequent Copa Americas, they've massively, I mean, obviously, clearly Tita has been absolutely key, but they've also massively upgraded at, at both ends of the pitch. Obviously, you had four years ago, it was Fred up front, and then they sort of cycled through, you know, the likes of Tardelli and Jonas are playing up front. And now, obviously, they've got Gabriel Hayes, I think, is probably still the, the first choice. And you've also got Firmino. I guess will be the not, not bad options to have well, right. and then obviously in goal I think what, was, what has also been really important is that Alisson is now the number one um, and has been pretty faultless on, on Brazil duty and we yeah. saw Mar Edison over here given what we've seen from him you know. and they've got Coutinho as well I think played I think when the Gab was watching the game I think they rejigged it and he dropped back slightly deeper yeah. as well and it's interesting if they do play him in that position, they have no problem going four-one-four-one yeah. if they need to, and you know when you also have fullbacks who, those two guys when they come inside, you know we we celebrate attacking fullbacks as guys who can skin people down the wing and deliver great crosses. When those guys come inside, they become number tens. That's the scary thing about it. Then you've got yet another creative outlet. So, so no, so on, on paper, they're, they're right up there. Yeah, no doubting the talent in the Brazil squad. But as we've been speaking, the breaking news from the Germany squad is that there's no Leroy Sane. I mean, how big a surprise is that, Henry? It's huge. I mean, we've been watching him this season. I mean, Brandt has obviously been having a good season, but 
I just I find it extraordinary. I mean, was a young player of the year, the goals and the assists he scored for Manchester City. I think he's he's developed, if that's possible, during the season. I don't think there's anything off the pitch in terms of lifestyle or anything. I mean, he's just you talk to people at Manchester City and they say, yeah, he's grounded, just just gets on with it, good professional. I find it extraordinary, but then maybe we're looking at it from an English perspective, where the, our cupboard is is a bit bare. I imagine Germany could easily field two squads and certainly get one to the final, probably one to the quarters or, or the semi, because they've got that strength and depth. Uh, pleased to see Neuer back in there after what he's been through. I think he's just a fantastic... Whenever he interviews, I think he comes over as a really interesting character and just he's obviously changed a lot of... Um, approach to, to goalkeeping but yeah Sane I, find, I do find it extraordinary it puts a bit of pressure on Brandt hmm. uh, as you say it's, it's Julian Brandt that's uh, been opted for uh, in, instead so James can can they become the first side since what Brazil in 1962 to defend their World Cup title I think they certainly can um, for me I, th- I think if you look at that Germany team, I think there are a lot of individual questions. There are sort of not 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 questions, but you don't necessarily have players coming in off the back of a great season. You look at up front, and it will probably we think be Timo Werner. He's had a little bit of a down season following. I think got twenty goals the season before, and I think only something like twelve in the league this season. Um, something like that. But anyway, on, on a team that was a lot worse this year too, in his defence. But yeah, true. Um, I mean, Urzel had a you know one of those yeah. in and out classic Mesut Urzel right. seasons. Um, I didn't feel Gundogan was hugely convincing for Man City, and a lot of their worst performances coincided with him playing. Hector got relegated in last place with Cologne, and Neuer hasn't played. Has barely played this season. This is so dangerous. When, writing off the journey. No, I'm not. I'm not. Hey, I remember Munich 2001 walking out of there, and everyone saying, "Oh, Sven's going to lead us to the to, to the final in Yokohama," and uh, England went out, and uh, and the Germans marched on. Not, I, I can go even further and help you out with this one. <laughs> right? No, they have two centre forwards on this team. One is Timo Werner, who you cite, who you cited, who is you know is the little guy who runs around and falls over and scores goals. The other one is Mario Gomez, who I I, I thought he was in his forties and he's not. <laughs> but Werner might be a superstar one day. This is not these are not superstars. He, Thomas Muller, he's been shuttled all over the pitch. The poor guy. Uh, the mentality is the superstar. The mentality is a superstar. Marco Royce missed a big chunk of the season uh, through injury. You know, Ozil continues to. Divide opinion, certainly here in England. Um, he's been player of the year for Germany five out of the last seven years. He seems to become a different guy when he puts on that shirt. So you put these things together and, you know, you can, to some degree, go and pick holes. I, I, I ask questions at the back, too. Spain. Let's get on to them. Uh, it's fair to say we've not seen the best of Spain in the last two tournaments. Is that right? Or is that unfair to say that? No, I think it's probably fair compared to what they've been doing before. Um, look, you, you look at the players that they leave out. Again, it shows their their strength and depth, particularly in midfield. Uh, look, they're absolutely going to be a, a threat. I, I agree with Gab's point earlier about sort of the, the quality of coaching and, and leadership, but there's still a you know a heart to that Spanish team that that will drive them on. And again, coming back to the mentality, and it's obviously a counterpoint to the England situation. They will have that mentality. They'll have that humility and that ambition. And that is a cultural element within Spanish football, within the Spain dressing room, that will drive them on. I think over the over the last two tournaments, Spain sort of almost they kind of almost sort of lapsed into a kind of parody of themselves. They become 
very, they become sterile dominators basically of games where they would have a lot of possession. But I think in the if you look at they played seven matches over um, twenty fourteen World Cup and Euro twenty sixteen, and they only scored more than one goal in two of those, and one of them was a dead rubber against Australia, and one of them was a, a, a group game in Euro twenty sixteen against Turkey. And I think what Lopetegui has has done well is. He's given, I don't want to say, I mean... Directness? Yeah, he's given them a bit of a kind of attacking life back, particularly Isco in particular has been absolutely key in that. And and I did mention Asensio. Asensio was the other one. And also running from deeper, Saul. You know, because we can talk about, oh, you need more cutting edge when these guys are good at passing, but you need guys who can do that. That's why in, you know, in the past he was so obsessed with, with Vitolo, who isn't necessarily a great player, but he will run straight at you and take you on, and that, that provides that change of, of, of pace, which is sometimes has been lacking in, in, in the past. Um, I think the other big question, Mark, I don't know if you agree, James, is up front, you know, you've got Diego Costa, where the good news is he's well-rested because he didn't play for six months, but, you know, you wonder, especially in a VAR World Cup, how he's going to fare. But then beyond that, you know, you've got Iago Aspas, a very different player, coming off a good season as well, and... Uh, um, and, and Rodrigo, who, you know, I, I'm not sure about picking him ahead of Morata, frankly, but they can beat you so many ways. And the other key thing, which we were overlooking because we look at their style, is their defense and, and their goalkeeper. You know, some people have poked holes at this and says, like, oh, but they don't have, you know, necessarily you don't have a recognized center forward because of the doubts surrounding Costa, but... That was Germany four years ago. They didn't have a recognized center well, forward. It's interesting when you. But they had a great defense and a great goalkeeper, and, like Spain. And also, um, we talk talking about the sort of slight question mark at center forward. Possibly Spain's best performance in qualifying the three 0 against Italy. I'm pretty sure they played. They didn't play one. They played false. They played, sure they played a false nine. As like a false nine. The train is now approaching junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What about France? They're a team full of names. What, Paul Pogba, Antoine Griezmann, uh, Kylian Mbappe, Usman Dembele, for example. But are they actually a team? (laughs) That's the big question, I think, hanging over them, Gab. It's kind of like Belgium 2016, writ small, in the sense that so much talent, arguably 
maybe the most talented team in, in the tournament. I sense two potential issues here. One, I had this discussion with Julian Lawrence recently, and he agreed, is a lack of leadership, especially in terms of veteran leadership. You know, people may not like Kasielny, but I think in some ways he was a big loss, you know, within the dressing room. And I think, you know, you look at the rest, you've got a mixture of young players, guys who really aren't leaders, guys like Pogba who want to be leader, but then in 2016, Deschamps drops him. Um, and that brings you on to Deschamps himself, who I don't think is an exceptional manager and who sometimes tinkers and makes poor decisions. And we saw that at the Euros in terms of how his squad fits together. His man management's been up and down. You know, he, he's got a Ferrari there, but you don't quite know if he has a license to drive. There's a Ferrari of a coach in Sudan who is, at some point, you would imagine, is, is made for the, the, the French national job. So I know he wants some time out to recharge his batteries, but you're nodding, Gab. Do you, do, can you see him there? I just thought when everyone's talking about, oh, he'll be snapped up by a club, I would have thought Zidane for the national team would be. I mean, in some ways, it would be a good fit because there's so much talent there. What do you really need to do? You need to go and... A bit like Real Madrid, you need to be kind of a galactic whisperer, keep everybody happy, pick the right 11, and then kind of let them get on with it, with a system that, that's simple and that they understand and not mess around with it too much. And I think in some ways, that's been the issue with, with, with Deschamps. I mean, it, he kind of blew the Euros at home through certain decisions, like, like when he dropped Pogba, and then he messed around with Sissoko, and, you know, he, did, he took a lot of decisions that I think he would... He'd love to have a do-over, and I guess he's getting a do-over in Russia. I hope so. I hope Pogba has a good tournament. I know everyone goes on about the emojis and you know the haircuts and things like that, but just talking to people at Manchester United, they love him partly because he's you know he sort of grew up there. But there's there is a humility. Okay, so he's got a nice car, but there's a humility. He will go when he sees the academy people around the building. He'll go over. He he will walk over, and he'll go out of his way to sort of. Say, so I quite like hearing little bits of stories about him like that. And there's a fabulous footballer in there. I mean, if, if he clicks physically, he's got the pace, he's got the strength, he's got the technique, he might over-elaborate in certain areas. But he's actually one of those players that you want to write about and want to watch. They've got issues defensively, though, for France. I think if you look at their last eight times they've played a, a side in the top 35 of the FIFA rankings, they've conceded two or more goals on five of those occasions. Although, Koscielny, I think, would have played in a lot of those matches. So it's in, maybe... I'm not sure Deschamps would have dropped Koscielny. I'm pretty sure he would have been his first-choice team, but now he's not there. I guess it'll probably be Umtiti and Varane, which may be better. But the don't other... you think it is better? I mean, I've, I saw a lot. I saw a lot of Koscielny last season, and you could see that he was managing yeah, I think, the, 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 the Achilles. He wasn't the Koscielny with that snap and authority of a couple of years ago. Let's think about the mystery of Argentina who were very much so-so in qualifying, weren't they? They, well, they finished 13 points off Brazil in the uh, South American qualifying. Uh, and they even came quite close to missing out. They had to secure their spot in Russia on their final round of fixtures. Um, obviously, a lot of focus on a certain Lionel Messi. Where do we rank Argentina and, and this squad going to Russia? It depends whether the other players in the Argentinian team respond to his phenomenal high standards. So he's not having to carry them. This is a huge tournament for Lionel Messi. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, we're lucky to live in this era of Ronaldo and, and Messi, but I think for Messi, he must be very aware of his, the legacy, and I know he's lived outside the country a long time, but the legacy within Argentina vis-a-vis -vis Maradona. I mean, the fact that Maradona, you know, at World Cups, you know, he, he, did, he did come alive. 
I think Messi needs to do that. This is a, I mean, Messi is in the top five all time. I completely get that. But I think to actually push Pelé and 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 Maradona for those top slots, he needs a great tournament. So does he, does he need to win a World Cup? I'm old school. I do think that you know the greats have won them. But then you can have a debate about George Best and people like that. But yeah, I do. I do. I think that the games, you know, is about trophies as well as entertainment. And he'll be 34 in four years time Gab so not saying he won't be there in four years yeah, time but given the way he plays I don't know I mean you know, he can, I'm sure he can adjust it and, and keep his place in the national team but to me the interesting thing is after going for successive sort of more traditional orthodox managers who kind of said well we'll just build the team around Messi and they've gone for a manager in Jorge Sampaoli who I think is and I don't use this word lightly is <clears throat> is a genius when he has time to work with the players and do things properly. Anybody who's seen his, his Chile team or, or before that, uh, when he was in charge of, uh, of Universidad de Chile, you know, it almost like they were playing a different sport out there. The problem is to play that way, you need a lot of time on the training pitch. And he didn't have that. He took over in, in sort of the final games of qualifying, so he didn't necessarily revolutionize the system. And I'm going to be really curious to see what he does now at the World Cup because does he try to implement his system, which is based on a lot of pressing, a lot of coordinated movement. He's gotten skilled players to fit into it. He certainly did it with Alexis Sanchez and Arturo Vidal. But can you do this with Argentina? Can you do this when it's not just Messi, but you also have to fit, presume you'll fit either Aguero or Higuain in there somewhere. And curiously, because of the glut of talent that they have up front, he felt he had to take Paulo Dybala to the World Cup. But he almost had to get Messi's blessing to do it. And sort of the line that he said is, oh, well, Dybala will be Messi's backup. So he'll play when Messi doesn't play. So it's almost like, all right, so you only fit when if Messi gets injured or sent off or, or whatever. It's an imperfect team. They've got issues at the back. And in midfield, you know, they've, he's tried to go for the experience of Macerano and Biglia together, which... At this stage of the, of the career, must be the slowest midfield partnership. <laughs> I think. I think ever. You know. I mean, they bring a ton of experience and other stuff to the table. So, you know, he's got to find that right mix. And he's been always been about dynamic players. And this is not a particularly dynamic team. Finally, then Belgium. Let's speak to the one eighth Belgian <laughs> in the room. How do you assess Belgium's chances? Um, I. I. But. I think Belgium are very, very hard to assess because they've played a, a really weak standard of opposition since the last Euros. I was looking at their games and in their last 16 matches, they've scored 54 goals, which works out at about three, three and a half goals a game. So you could say, wow, they're flying. But if you look at who they've played in that time, I think the, the match they played against Portugal at the weekend was the first time in that entire run they've played a side ranked in the world's top 15. What I find extremely curious and bizarre about Belgium's preparation is that despite having one of the weaker, probably one of the weaker European qualifying groups, they've consistently played incredibly soft, friendly opposition in total contrast to what Gareth Southgate has done with England. If you look at the ranking of their last six friendly opponents, 69th, 55th, 16th, 44th, 60th, and then they played Portugal the weekend to a ranked fourth. I think if any team is going to get to Russia and just be too kind of 
lightly raced in racing parlance. It might be Belgium. They strike me as a bit kind of untested, and I just think mm. they might be a bit undercooked. Untested, and also Roberto Martinez's first tournament as the Belgium manager. No, I no, I, lo- I love Roberto. I actually do <laughs> love him. I think he's a lovely man as well. But no, I'm just just to say, you know, it's his first. There's a few of the managers are going yeah. out to Russia. It's their first tournament, but uh, you know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how he gets on. I think he's an instant upgrade over Mark Vilmot. Um, I think that bottle of sparkling water next to you would probably be an upgrade over Mark <laughs> Vilmot as well. Um, he's made some choices that. So it was classic, like you walk away fool or a king, like the decision to leave out, you know, James's pal, Raja Nangolan, for example, who with a justification, oh, but he played as an attacking midfielder, not a defensive midfielder this year. And we really have De Bruyne and Hazard and Mertens and whatever. I don't know. Seems a bit like, okay, yeah, I'm sure for the national team, he could go and, you know, give Witzel and Fellaini or whatnot a run, a run for their money. Um, and Dembele, to be fair. My concern is at the back, as it often is. Alderweireld is a phenomenal defender, but he's obviously had a very, very tough six months with his with his injury, with some of the contractual issues. I think those can weigh on you. I think he is their best defender, and they need the real Alderweireld in there. And obviously, the uncertainty with with Vincent Company as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you put those things together, and you wonder, you know, is Roberto the best guy? to deal with it, to come up with a with a defensive plan B. I think that would be one of my real concerns there. Let's move it on to the dark horses uh, of the tournament and start with uh, Portugal. Can they convert their European success to become the world champions? Henry? How many of you going to ask me about the dark horses? I think I did it in the supplement that it would be Uruguay. So if we're, if we're looking at dark horses in... Are they necessarily dark horses in terms of, you know, what they did in the in the Euros. They're on the cusp. Should we say they're on the cusp? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, it, I think it would be a surprise. I think it would be, um, you know, obviously they've got Ronaldo and he's a, he's a formidable player. This surely will be his last World Cup, do we think? Oh, I don't put anything past well. that guy. <laughs> he, he keeps reinventing himself. He is yeah. he is yeah. phenomenal. There have been sort of five yeah. phases of Ronaldo. There was a really good piece on that, that in the paper, very well written. About sort of the five phases of. Was that your piece? I believe so. Yeah. No. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not being clever. It was it was a fantastic piece. It really was. I thought the the detail in it, and in fact, without sort of um, blowing your trumpet, because you're quite capable of doing that, the um, a lot of coaches on social media picked up on that. Oh, well, thank you. They get a good response. Um, my concern with Portugal is twofold. One is, apart from Bernardo Silva and one or two others. Most of the guys they have are not coming off good seasons, or they're simply old. Pepe is likely to start, and he's 35 years old, and he's not even the oldest center back that they have, because Bruno Alves is 36. You know, and one of those guys goes out, they have the spring chicken, Jose Font, who's 34, <laughs> coming in. I Now, over coming from a country that specializes in old central defenders, um, you can get away with it, you know, because it is a short tournament. It's not like it's a league, but it is an extra thing to think about. You know, they pick up knocks. They're not going to be as quick. You might argue some of these guys weren't that good to begin with. You put those things together, and this does not feel like, like, it, it looks like a team that's still spent after two years ago. And uh, I think it's going to be hard for them to get to get it back up again. 
Plus, I think Fernando Santos very much leans towards the kind of more conservative little, yes, just a little bit. that you can make. So I think some of the more exciting players that you might want to see in that Portugal eleven, the likes of Gonzalo Guedes, will probably not be in there, and you'll probably have João Mario, who is not so <laughs> not charisma. so exci- not so exciting. Um, uh, talking of leaning, Henry, you said Uruguay for your dark horse. Why? Um, experience of the last World Cup, watching them um, against England, and then talking to Rooney the day after the England camp, and he was just saying his his argument was England have got to be more streetwise. He wasn't saying cheating. He just said, "Look at Diego Godin. He was on a booking, and then Sturridge. He fouled Sturridge." And a couple of the England players were saying to uh, Sturridge, stay down, stay down, we'll get Diego Godin sent off. And this was the type of thing that Diego Godin, we saw with Atletico Madrid, we've seen it with Uruguay. There is a streetwise element to them. Obviously, it strays into excess. We've seen that with Suarez. But they've just got, they've got a spine there. You know, you just look at, I mean, Cavani and Suarez. I mean, these are, these are serious operators, good centre-halves. And, and they've got... You know, and, and for Uruguay, it almost felt like for so many years, because it, it is a small country, and you, you'll appreciate this, Henry, it seemed like it was always the same people in the national team, like Diego Lugano and Maxi Pereira and Arvalo Rios. Now they actually have some new faces, and especially in midfield. Lucas Torreira and Rodrigo Bentancourt, I don't know if they're both going to start, but Torreira especially is a phenomenal footballer. These guys are young, they're dynamic. I think they allow some of the older players to take a little bit of, of a breather. And... It allows you to play in a slightly different way from the old, you know, Uruguay, grind them down, you know, by hook or by crook, get a goal. And and if the batters can fully, if they can fully exploit the other dimension, I, I think, like Henry, I, I think they would be one of my dark horses. I completely agree with Henry and Gab. I think they are they are one of the most, if not the most credible dark horse. And and I would go back to the point I was making about preset partnerships that, that know each other. I mean, obviously you've got Godin and Jimenez who've played together at Atletico Madrid. You've got Suarez and Cavani up front who, all right, they're not club mates, but they've been playing international football together mm. as a two for the best part, probably more than 10 years, 10 years, we'll say. And then, and you look at, they got to a World Cup semi-final with Suarez and Cavani up front and Godin at centre-back. And they've probably got a better midfield. Well, I mean, almost certainly got a better midfield yeah. now than they than they did then. The game World Cup daily from the Times with Natalie Sawyer. Let's focus on the golden boot now. Now, last uh, time around, it was James Rodriguez that won that, uh, even though he didn't actually end on end up on the winning side, if you like. So you can score a hatful of goals and not win the World Cup. But when you look at the talent in the squads, who are we picking to win this one? Gab? I always find this so difficult mm. to call because there's so many things that can, that can go wrong for you um, and so many unexpected things. I'm going to lean Neymar because you expect Brazil to go far in the tournament score a lot of goals and he takes set pieces but but it's a really tough call it's, it's a tough call I'm going to lean towards Messi on the basis he'll probably play four games and he'll probably get five goals in those I mean he you know they are in a difficult group but I can still see Messi being being key yeah. five goals might win it Argentina facing Iceland Croatia and Nigeria it's a tough mm. group that yeah. to call isn't it oh, it's a really tough group mm. yeah certainly compared to England 
Uh, James, how about you? Who's your golden boot winner? Uh, I feel like someone like Luis Suarez could rack up a lot of goals in what is a pretty weak group going up against Russia, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. I mean, you wouldn't put it past Suarez to have, I don't know, five or six goals by the end of the the group phase. Um, Might get suspended. True. (laughs) What about Mo Salah? Will he add to his 44 goals from this season? Well, he's playing Saudi Arabia, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I watched these guys, they, they, they played Italy in a friendly recently, and to be fair, it could have been, uh, you know, an Italian player, since we decided to take the summer off and have let somebody else have a go. Very um, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, they were kind of, they were pretty chilled out, whereas presumably the Saudi players had taken on heavier workloads so to build up fitness for the World Cup. But man, they looked terrible. They looked really, really, really rough. Mm. Um, so they really need to get get it together in double quick time. And what about Harry Kane? How do we think he's going to fare as captain as well? Well, yeah, the, the, the captaincy is interesting. I mean, I, look, he's a great role model. He's going to start. People talk about um, how good he is with the, the the media. Is he a bit sort of dry? I really like Kane. I think he's he's just so popular. He's, he's guaranteed his place. I think there's almost you know the, the, the cynical in me thinks that captains who are strikers if there's a 50-50 call on a penalty or a free kick around the box I think this is the Glenn Hoddle uh, thesis um, the the, the captain because of the strength of the armband referees okay they're the experience and supposedly the best they might actually be influence if Kane goes down I think well he wouldn't die if he's the England captain or whatever I don't know that might be a bit of an outdated philosophy but it's certainly one that with our Southgate bat he was very diplomatic. He said basically didn't want any headlines that <laughs> I've I've made Kane captain uh, because he'll get more penalties. Um, but you know that philosophy you know is is discussed at England. Did you ask Southgate whether Kane will be taking corner kicks like we saw him do against Iceland? Do you know that was one of the great things of uh, of Saturday was seeing Trippier taking him from one side and, and Ashley <laughs> Young taking him from the other, and Kane actually in the box. You know, this is what we weren't used to at the last tournament. But what about the role of a captain? Is that important these days, Gab? Honestly, no. <laughs> it's it's important to have leaders on your team, but you know, having a little strip of cloth, I don't think. I mean, in England, it might be different because you have more of the cult of the captain. You know, I'm I'm not that old, and I remember debates about how. In fact, I was in school at the time, but well, but surely you can't give Gary Lineker the England captaincy, because he's a striker. And then surely Gaza can't be captain because he doesn't have the requisite generosity of spirit, whatever the hell that means. No, but honestly, this is what football writing in broadsheets was like until Henry came along. Um, it worse. Oh, no, sorry, the, <laughs> no, no, the, the culture of captaincy is still huge in this Yeah, country. no. Well, the, the, the Italian way, sorry, interrupting you, Gab, the Italian way that probably the more sanguine members of the England coaching staff respect and like and would love to bring over to England is is the most cap player takes the armband yeah, in the Italian right. team but the reason why we are obsessed with it not simply all the sort of Bobby Moore and all that but because of the fear psychologically it's so huge and that is why our dearth of leaders authority figures responsibility takers means we bestow even more significance on the captain what's interesting though is we go back I mean you alluded to this before right some of the great England teams on paper from the 2000s when we talked about how leaders are more important, well, if I go back and I look at, you know, when you have Gerrard and Carragher and Ferdinand and Lampard on the same team, you figure 
damn, that's, that's a lot of leaders, right? I only had one captain's armband, but it didn't matter because you had all these leaders. Now I look at this, and on paper, Henderson maybe? I mean, all who's, captains, no, but who, who's a leader even? And maybe in that way, putting it all on the shoulders of Kane, who, unless you're trying to take goals away from him, seems entirely unflappable and everybody seems to genuinely like, again, that could be another little positive. You know, there isn't going to be this debate about too many voices speaking up in the dressing room um, and maybe egos getting in the way because there's one guy who's captain and he happens to be somebody that most people like, genuinely like and respect. Okay, here's my final question then. Who is going to win this World Cup? Just one word, one team, one country. Brazil. Brazil, James? Spain. Spain. Gab. Spain. Spain. There you go. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to my guests today, Henry Winter, Gab Marcotti and James Gearbrandt. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy our award-winning journalism on your smartphone or tablet. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times online. And with World Cup fever spreading, you can get your hands on The Times World Cup 64-page guide, which will be available on Saturday as well as online. And then, of course, we all love a World Cup chart, don't we? You'll be able to get your hands on The Times' chart on Monday the 11th. Uh, We'll be back next Thursday after day one of the World Cup in Russia. See you then. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.